LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Die internationale Finanz, sie blieb brutal, rücksichtslos, sie presste unser Volk aus, soweit sie konnte. Die Staatsmänner der alliierten Nationen, Sie blieben hartherzig. Im Gegenteil, man sagte damals ganz eiskalt, dass wir 20 Millionen Deutsche zu viel seien. 1939 haben nun diese Westmächte die Maske fallen lassen. Sie haben Deutschland die Kriegserklärungen geschickt. Trotz all unserer Versuche, trotz unserem Entgegenkommen. Sie geben es heute ganz ungeniert selber zu. Jawohl! Polen hätte wahrscheinlich eingewilligt, aber das wollten wir nicht. Sie geben es heute zu, dass es möglich gewesen wäre, leicht eine Verständigung herbeizuführen. Aber sie wollten das nicht. Sie wollten den Krieg. Guten! Das haben mir einst meine inneren Gegner auch gesagt. Ich habe ihnen auch so auf die Hand gegeben. Sie haben sie zurückgestoßen. Sie schrien auch, nein, nicht Versöhnung, nicht Verständigung, sondern Kampf. Gut, Sie haben den Kampf bekommen. Und ich kann Frankreich und England nur sagen, auch Sie werden den Kampf bekommen. Greetings and welcome to the 100th edition of LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Thomas Sheridan, who joins us to discuss his book, Walpurgis Night, Volume 1, 1919-1933. Did you know that Hitler feared a dormant demonic force residing inside the moon, which he believed somehow created and controlled human destiny? In Walpurgis Night... Sheridan, known for his work on psychopathology, mass hysteria and social engineering, for the first time tackles a historical subject using these concepts as a framework in which to re-examine the rise of the Nazi death cult and its legacy. Sheridan's research goes beyond the occult development of the Nazis by delving into the repressed Teutonic Haxon psyche, examining everything from the movies of the era to the political factions of 1919, who were invoking their own demons of death and destruction. The book takes into account every aspect of the Nazi occult, from fascination, otherwise known as eye magic, to word spells, to the sex magic rituals of the Third Reich. You'll never see history in quite the same way again, and you'll be left wondering if indeed the Nazis' black hacks and magic is still at work today. 
Hello and welcome, Thomas, and thank you so much for joining us again on LegalizeFreedom.com for this, the 100th edition. I'm delighted to be the 100th guest, and congratulations on making it this far. It's really amazing. No, oh, well, thanks very much. I've do, been doing my best, being just basically, you know, t- going put one foot in front of the other, as they say, and just trying not to move backwards. That's all you can really do. So uh, today, Thomas, we're going to talk about uh, your new book, Wall Purgis Night, uh, Volume 1, 1919 to 1933. Uh, before we dive into that, just tell listeners a bit about your work in general and then what uh, brought you into you know, being interested to write the book. Well, as most people know, I'm interested in psychopathology. That was my initial interest, having been, you know, a graphic designer, a communications on Wall Street, a communications consultant on Wall Street. Coupling that with my interest in social engineering, and trying to see correlations between both, and so I'd done as much as I was ever going to do in that, in the, if you know, regarding psychopathology and regarding social engineering. But I decided then to turn that, using that work I had done in the past as a template towards re-examining history, and in particular, the history of Germany and the Third Reich and what led to it in a sign of a so- social psycho, psychosocial manner, to try and bring some understanding to it because I was kind of, you know, I, was, I just wanted to, to see if that template of the previous work I had done could be successfully overlaid and overlaid on this historical period, and then perhaps new meaning found from that that could give us a whole understanding of the situation at the time. Now, there's an early uh, section in the book where most interesting where you talk about the notion of the artist um, as a seer bringing into being somehow archetypally um, future events. Now, this is very relevant to the the events that you detail in the book and what happened in Germany. So perhaps you just explain a little bit about that concept. Well, as I've been saying for a while, you know, going back quite a bit now, there's something about the creative process that kind of either creates or reveals a future vision. It's It's absolutely a magical process, but it comes with enormous responsibilities especially if someone has an artistic power in terms of the numbers and the influence they can they can achieve. Carl Jung pointed this out too as well. In fact, he had a premonition, and he was also quite an accomplished painter, by the way. He had a, a premonition of the First World War, while Europe being swallowed in an ocean of blood running from the North Sea down to the Alps. And this directly came out of his kind of own artistic pursuit, and it was right before World War One. And this opened up the idea to him that there's something about the artist and the artistic process that not only gets a glimpse of future changes, but also can kind of predict them and even make reality. Now, we're getting into very deep subjects here about the, the nature of reality and the matrix and all this kind of thing and quantum theory, but there definitely is a truth to that. There's definitely an aspect of change which is brought about in a kind of a magical, you know, you know, a magical kind of a cult sense by the artist. And this is why governments and corporations have sought to control the arts and manipulate the artistic creative process in terms of corporate and social dynamics and things within their favor 
Now, what, ha- what happened in this early part of the book was I looked back to see what the gestation of the German, you know, psychic breakdown that happened in the 1920s, the, the teens and the 1920s and so on. And you see how big a part the arts played in it. For instance, the artist Franz van Stuck, very brilliant German painter, painted a picture of the wild chase of the, the Germanic Teutonic version of Wotan, which is their version of Odin, riding out on his horse, bearing an uncanny resemblance to Adolf, the adult Adolf Hitler, laying waste across the land. And he painted his painting while Adolf Hitler was gestating in his mother's womb. There were also several poets and other artists who had similar kind of ideas around this period, and particularly what is perhaps one of the greatest instinctual magicians of all time, Richard Wagner, was all, was also heavily involved in this. And all of this artistic process in Germany in the mid to late Victorian era, spilling over into the early 20th century, literally created a kind of a womb in which Adolf Hitler and National Socialism was gestated. Reading this section of the book, recalled in my mind again some interviews I'd done about remote viewing and it almost felt like a parallel there you know you're drawing something from another point in time and you mentioned quantum theory and we think about non-locality and about how space and time uh, are kind of illusions in a way and that everything exists simultaneously so that got me to thinking about that. It's true because there's an introduction to this book where I had a similar experience myself, which was uh, I tell people about now. I was I usually start every project, every project, whether it's a musical one or a film or a book, with sketches that I do in my. I have a large A2 sketchbook with large pages on them, and I just randomly go on a kind of a a stream of sort of like a doodling consciousness, and I write down words, and I was. I said, I'm, I said to myself, I'm going to do a history, an occult and, you know, psychosocial history of the Third Reich. And I'd already decided this following a visit to an SS bunker in Norway that left me kind of profoundly changed. And so while I was doing this, I drew a picture of, for some inexplicable reason, a British World War One tank with the German Iron Cross on it. And above it, a a picture of what looked like a kind of an alien or a demon or a gym in a skull and crossbones motif. Well, to my amazement, a few days later while looking at, because I find that things like cinema and popular literature are very good ways to read the history of society at the time. And, and one of the, the great assets of studying National Socialism and that period in Germany is there's a wealth of cinematic um, you know, resources you can pull across all upon it helps you understand these dynamics more carefully and more closely and there in the middle of all this was a poster for a, a movie called Nervin which was set in Munich in 1919 which is the, the flashpoint of this book Valpurgis Night Volume 1 and there was the advertising poster for the movie showing a very similar almost identical Jinn, alien, demon, archon, whatever you want to call it, rising out of the ruins of Munich in Valpurgis Night, 
Beltane 1919. And to, then that was the point I realized that I was actually invoking this myself. Now, it was not a pleasant experience, Greg, if I'm honest about it. Even talking about it right now, I'm a little nervous because it happened at the, round t- the same time I was doing some very intense research at the Jimmy Savile and his my belief that he's a serial killer and was potentially involved with the Yorkshire Ripper. And I had an experience that felt very much like a, a psychic attack in that I felt like my I was literally being drained out of my body and it it just dawned on me then that I touched into something. And I said, well, I'll see how I feel in a few days. And a couple of days, a few days later, I felt a lot better. It was almost like I was being tested or something. But I'm, as you say, remote viewing, I think there's an element of to, to that that artists have. And I also think there's an element of, I don't know, we can tap into aspects of other consciousness, perhaps even what people call the Witiko or the Archons or whatever you want to call this, like the Jinn, this non-human intelligent consciousness that appears to be on this planet that has a an interest, shall we say, in human affairs and not always within our, our best interest. And I think that something happened, started to do this book, and I'm glad I did because it was almost like the door was being opened to me but at the same time, I was being I was being told, "Are you good enough to to go through with this project? Do you have the nerve, Nervin, to follow this through?" So I was reading into the archetypes and the symbolisms and the synchronicities at a very very deep level, and I I do feel now that that's exactly what happened to me, and I think the book became a journey a, a journey into the labyrinth of history in that manner and it would not have been the book would have not have been so satisfying for me to write personally i enjoyed writing the book immensely if i had not have had that initial kind of baptism of fire whatever was behind it whatever caused it but it was an integral part of this journey and you know it it happened to me too so it's a real experience and it's a real phenomenon it would be quite interesting to see that being adopted as a a school text on the war (laughs) that would shake things up a bit but um (laughs) The remote viewers that I've had on have basically said we we can all do this and we kind of do it all the time. It's just a question of how tuned in you are. Um, I had an expert on about synchronicity as well, and he said, look, your synchronous events are happening all the time. It just depends on if you're looking for them or not. So I think we all have these sort of abilities to transcend, you know, space time. And again, that's a whole other show in itself, really, that particular topic. But some of what you're saying also kind of triggers, and it's funny how often when I'm doing these programs, I get triggers that remind me of popular culture items. And uh, I know we've talked about this before, but I started to think about The Shining just when you were speaking there and about how the lead character, I can't remember the names now, but the writer, how he gets affected gradually and also his uh, son, how he's affected um, by certain presences. And it's, it's um, I don't know, just what you were saying made me think about this, you know, about latent abilities and about sensing uh, events to use the word here before they happen you'd have to even qualify that if you start thinking about quantum theory yes the shining is an interesting one the, the his name is i think was jack the character was called jack in the film i can't remember his second name but he uh it's a very different story than the novel the stephen king novel the actual house the building itself has a kind of a dialogue and a voice 
and it's uh, incredibly racist and it's actually monitoring and, and you can, it's cognitive processes are written in the book by Stephen King. And it's almost like the building itself has become a repository for these, uh, the, these entities, what do you want to call them, the jinn or whatever, or whatever you want to call them. And I make reference to this in Valpurgis Night, talking about the order of the Templars and the cold compound on the banks of the Danube, where, as you said, affected, but I think it almost becomes an, an infection as well. It becomes uh, almost like a mind parasite, like a consciousness parasite. And I do believe that Adolf Hitler is a young man visiting Landsband Liebensfeld in the Order of the Templars compound. While he was at a very low point in his life, it was, you know, trauma seems to aid infection. And Adolf Hitler, whatever kind of person he was prior to this, was, was absolutely affected in some way by his experience at visiting this building, which is a, an interesting synchronicity because it's a very similar situation. To what happens in a cult compound and Adolf Hitler entered into one at a very at a very difficult and a very a very low point in his existence as a young man seeking answers and it, it seems to be that he got more than he was looking for uh, before I leave the the artist aspect behind I was reminded yet again uh, by a couple of other items when reading the early part of the book and one was the You'll know about this, the Illuminati card game from the 1990s, and yeah. uh, a lot of cards in that deck. And you know, they just the sheer amount of information that's there, and all, a lot of the symbolism is quite uncanny. And also, I don't remember the guy's name, but there was an artist who painted 9/11 uh, sometime beforehand. When I say painted 9/11, as I I remember, do remember looking at the image several years ago, and it was kind of you know planes flying into the World Trade Center. There's endless stuff regarding 9-11 like that. I even stumbled across a very strange one recently. Do you remember that band with Robert Palmer called The Power Station? It was members of Duran Duran, and they had a few hits in the 80s. They did a version of the T-Rex song, Some Like It Hot, and I was looking at the video of that, and behind Robert Palmer while he's singing are jets flying towards the Twin Towers. Well, it looks like the Twin Towers. So again, it seems to... It seems, and that was that was recorded in the Power Station Studios in Manhattan. Again, here here's another example of it. It goes on and on that the artist seems to, ha you know, so many of these things when people see them, they say, oh, they were whistleblowing. Well, maybe they are in some cases, but I genuinely believe in the majority of the cases that they're actually, you know, they're the musician or the filmmaker accidentally having this remote viewing of the future going on and it's somehow infusing it into their work. And it's not until the event happens that we realize how blatantly obvious it is. Uh, there was a an image circulated on the web, seems to be genuine. And this is a coincidence, you could call it a synchronicity, but it was of a postage stamp featuring the World Trade Center towers. Uh, I can't remember when it was dated, but certainly prior to 9-11. And the postmark was of a jet airliner. And it was stamped on top of this postage stamp. And you can imagine the, you know, the angle it went at. Um, across these two buildings and that was just kind of even if you can just write that off as pure coincidence it's still it's it's unnerving to look at it is and the better we get at looking at these things and the more we kind of understand it it's just like what Carl Jung said about the more you work with synchronicity the synchronicity will work with you I do believe that we're getting better and more astute in this alternative movement at kind of reading 
the global dynamics due to the fact that we're sort of going through a kind of a mystery school of our own where we're recognizing symbolism and synchronicities and it's we're actually becoming almost uh, schooled in it by default. Now, you mentioned Watiko um, a few moments ago. I had um, Paul Levy on, if people want to search that interview out and learn a little bit about what where that comes from. But in your book, it, we're reminded again, and this sometimes comes up in conversations about uh, the events, you know, the, the Nazis and the Third Reich, this notion of evil. And it's very fashionable these days to dismiss that as like, oh, well, you know, there's not, there isn't such a thing as evil. There's just bad people. But there's something powerful here in that Watiko concept that does seem to be, and it's almost like in denying it, we're partly doing its work. It recalls, you know, just anything that falls into the category of that which cannot be named. And it seems to be something palpable, no matter how much we try and deny it. Well, I'm a big, um, you know, I totally accept the idea of evil as a real force for whatever reason in the cosmos. And like you said, this is all comes out of psychiatry. Psychiatry has been very much obsessed and involved with the idea of saying that there's no such thing as evil, that it's all chemical imbalances or it's neurology or it's schizophrenia, whatever. But I discount that. I think in those, in some cases they're, they're right. There is like chemical imbalances that causes otherwise normal people to do things, not chemical imbalances, ne- neurological damage, which causes otherwise normal people to do appalling things. But I absolutely believe that energy is a force. As John, you know, as Johnny Rotten said, anger is an energy. But I also believe that evil is an energy. It's an energy that can be harvested. It's a very powerful energy, and it becomes highly intoxicating for people who become involved with it. This is why black magic is much more commonly used. What you want to call black magic by the uh, the elites all through history, because the sheer powerful energy of black magic and working with black forces produces much more instant results it gets the answers and the, it gets the results very very quickly in a way that a sort of a methodological rebuilding of reality in a very wise and mature way won't it's almost like uh, the prostitute version of of magic you get instant results but you also come with an enormous price because it's inherently danger dan- dangerous to actually go down this path uh, black magicians may get instant instant results, but they're also playing in a very high-stakes game as high rollers, and anything can go wrong. And I think the, what happened with Third Reich, which ultimately to me, when you look, strip everything down, was an occult movement. It played that game to the ninth degree, ninth degree and it backfired with just as much force as what was put into it. Anger is almost, sorry, evil is almost like the plutonium of of sort of like non-material energetic forces. It gets, it has incredible power, but it's incredibly volatile and unstable. And nobody has learned to successfully work with it yet. What are your thoughts on the idea of an entire war as basically a magical ceremony as a blood ceremony a sacrifice well i certainly believe that's what world war one was i'm not sure about world war two but world war one most certainly was it it was loaded with occult symbolism even how it ended the 11th month of the 11th hour of the 11th day 
even though World War II was much more horrific and had much larger implications on the geopolitical reality of today, there seems to be an inherent obsession among the royals all over Europe, not just in the UK, not just the British royals, but also the even the Dutch and even the, the powerful remnants of the royal families of Germany, which are still very much a force in the world, even though it, Germany is a republic. They love celebrating World War One. There seems to be a huge sort of uh, ritual around the cenotaph in London. It seems to be an almost like a, a, a kind of a religion has been based up around World War One. That's another reason I wanted to get this book out in 2014. It's the 100th anniversary at the beginning of what they called the Great War, which was absolutely caused by the royal families of Europe involved in certain alliances due to relationships between royal houses and dynasties and the the millions who died in the trenches both on the east and western front happened as a result of royalty and that's probably why i think royalty to this day celebrates and they don't memorialize world war one they celebrate it and they seem to be charged by it or something because it was almost like that was their biggest moment in history and also world war one didn't end with armistice day in 1918 the remnants continued on as a point out in the book all over europe until way into 1920 it was still going on it was just that the war on the western front had more had had you know, an armistice had been declared, but it was still going on, fractured all over the world. Even in Ireland, the Irish War of Independence was a, a basically a spillover from World War One, as there were many other, you know, conflicts around Europe and right into the Russian Soviet Revolution. It never ended on the day they said; only the armistice did. And I believe that World War One was ultimately the initial magical spell that that launched the twentieth century, and being black magic it's why we've had so much chaos in the 20th century because it unleashed forces that i don't even think the elites themselves can control well this year so far i've absolutely seen uh, commemorations of the so-called great war build as celebrations and my instinctual reaction to the to that is the same as it's always been right from when I was at school and first became aware of the wars. And, you know, there was Poppy Day laying wreaths at the Cenotaph and all of that. And my gut reaction was like, we need to forget this, not to actually keep reliving it. But then, of course, people say, uh, you know, if you don't you forget history, you're doomed to repeat it. By forget, I don't mean memory hole it. But this ceremonial reliving of it is not healthy. And I apply that also to the Holocaust. Uh, which took place during World War II. You know, I'm not Jewish. It's not my place to say how, you know, people would wish to commemorate or otherwise. But just my feeling in my heart and my gut is that, that keeping this alive, now, of course, there's political and other reasons for doing so as far as a Holocaust concerned, but putting those aside, for me, it's like reliving, I don't know, a rape or some other sort of trauma, uh, reenacting it almost to the point where it's, it's it can't be healthy psychologically. It's harvesting energy for somebody, somebody, somebody or something is harvesting energy from this reliving of the trauma. I mean, when Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip visited Dublin a couple of, and uh, Ireland a couple of years ago, the first, you know, visit by a British monarchies to the Republic, this was, a lot of it was about you know, bringing the south of Ireland into the kind of World War One memorials. And so much of it revolved around that. 
I never saw anyone in the south of Ireland wear a poppy, and now they're all doing it now. So that that actual sort of like grief tourism or whatever you want to call it, trauma tourism that was brought to Ireland is now part of our culture in the south of Ireland too. And this this cannot be happening by accident. This this has to be producing energy that's being harvested somewhere. I always think of that film, Quatermass 2, no, sorry, Quatermass 3, the, the 1979 version with John Mills, where an alien force, well, they just say an alien force, doesn't necessarily mean it's on another planet, is actually harvesting the human race at these megalithic sites around around England. And how they do it is they cause social breakdown within the, in, within the United Kingdom to the point where people are living in constant fear and then the aliens develop a cult and begin harvesting the the life energy of the young people and that's exactly what happened with the nazis they did exactly the same thing this energy just seems to be harvested in enormous quantities and then it leaves this planet i would like to know where that goes and i think and i think there's a lot of truth to the fact that there are other forces within this cosmos within this on this planet even that do that do feed off this energy, whether they're the powerful and the elite that are living here or whether they're they're like some kind of consciousness parasite that exists outside our perception. But there's tremendous proof that that goes on because there makes no sense why humans are forced to fight wars and on these colossal scales or mismanage resources to the point where people die of starvation in large numbers. It cannot just be a political mandate. It cannot just be a sectarian or nationalist mandate. Well, talking about queer mass, I mean, that's, I don't know if Nigel Neal wrote all the stories, but that's him. And now there's a guy who does some interesting writing in terms of the concepts and things he puts in there. Uh, for example, he wrote, um, as much as I like the first Halloween film, you know, John Carpenter, it's a great little shocker. The only interesting film in the series in terms of uh, ideas is Season of the Witch, Halloween 3, with a screenplay partly cooked up by Nigel Neal, somewhat watered down, apparently, because it was too bleak. Uh, Nigel Neal's response was, um, I don't give a fuck. <laughs> That's yeah. what he said, because he does, I don't care if it's got a happy ending. It's not meant to have a happy ending. But I don't know if you're familiar with that film, but that's got all sorts of ideas about reclaiming the true meaning of, of Halloween, you know, in the sort of Irish tradition um, as a, a blood sacrifice. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of that film. I've seen it many times and I've examined it. It even dabbles with trans, not dabbles. It actually shows the idea of transhumanism and the police state, the town in California where these sort of like Irish Druids are kind of like living as a kind of an Amish community making these Halloween masks, it's filled with closed circuit television cameras that follow everyone's moved. The head of the community, I can't remember his name right now, it escapes me. He, uh, he, he basically is like a kind of a god in this town. He runs the hospitals as well as the factories and everything else. Is it Connor Cochran? I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. Connor Cochran. That's it. And it's, it's, it's a superb film. And I think it's one that everyone should see. Another, another thing in that line of sort of, you want to call it fiction that kind of reveals these kinds of ideas to us. It would be like the Dennis Wheatley novels as well. goes along the same line, particularly the devil rides out and to the devil, a daughter, both, both of which were made into excellent movie versions. But they, they kind of have shown what has transpired in everything from like Catholic child abuse and 
bizarre behavior in convents all the way to what goes on behind the stately the doors of stately homes in England and what they get up to. I do believe in a case of Wheatley, it, he was like a whistleblower that he, he did actually you know know about these things because he was so well up in British society and so well connected. Again, you know, fiction can be often as a, as revealing as the truth and sometimes can be a very powerful conduit towards finding it. Yeah, Wheatley was um, surprisingly involved in in the war. He was called in on a sort of consultancy basis. And uh, I know we had a little chat previously about this, and I've only read one volume of his um, autobiography, three volumes of it. Um, but I'd be most interested in the light of reading your book to go back and, and try and find the first two volumes of his, uh, just to see you know his take, which goes right back to the late 1800s through to 1919. I think the first edition or the first volume of his autobiography ends in 1919, which is interesting. And, uh, and of course, we had a brief chat as well about his uh, Nazi occult novels, of which he wrote at least two. And uh, so, yeah, that was another guy that was subconsciously or otherwise imparting ideas, information, archetypes, concepts. You know, there was more going on there than just Pulp Fiction. Even on the, even on the, the dawn of the British military inva- involvement in World War II, Lewis Spence, who was like a great occultist and folklorist, he's written some great books on the occult history and the folklore of Germany and other countries and Celtic folklore. He wrote a book called Occult Causes of the Present War, and he laid out precisely what was happening in in terms of a kind of a an occult, supernatural, Luciferian, what I call term, black hexan paganism the philosophy of might and power and all his kind of ideas of entrenched Darwinism in a kind of a spiritual blood sense. And he laid it all out on the eve of the war, basically pointing out that, you know, this is what was happening to Germany. Germany was under a kind of a gigantic black magic spell and we're not fighting with a regular enemy here. It's not going to be like World War One. We're not going to be fighting with a nation that will just, you know, fight a war like we've, you know, we're used to. They will have whole new methods and approaches to war because they've basically thrown up thrown out the thrown out the rule book of engagement in sort of geopolitics and also in terms of military and reverted in a very high tech sense back to the unresolved aspects of the Teutonic psyche that's rooted in the the darkness of the Black Forest and the hills and all these other aspects of the the archetypal core of the Teutonics. They brought this back in a kind of a technological sense, and this is what you will face. You will not face the same troops that you faced in the trenches. And the British Expeditionary Force, when it landed with the French Free French Forces in France, during the Battle of France in 1940, were shocked when they came face to face with the SS. They could not believe what they were hearing of SS troops going into churches and removing crucifixes from walls or turning the crucifix upside down and saying Jesus was the bastard son of a Jewish whore. Uh, How the SS had no regard for uh, human rights or prisoner rights when they would capture British prisoners, there seemed to be almost like a sacrificial slaughter using these daggers that had weird symbolism on them. And exactly what Lewis Spence predicted, the, the initial British expeditionary force, which to its credit 
almost stopped the Nazis very early on in the war. But what happened was that the, basically the, the British administration got cold feet and called them all back to Dunkirk. And this was a sort of a huge psychological blow to the through the British, you know, morale until they escaped from Dunkirk. And then it, the British uh, leadership under Churchill then kind of rebuilt that into a magical spell that allowed them to kind of like then begin fighting this almost like supernatural war with the Nazis on a kind of a, a non-material level. And it's usually reflected in propaganda, but lots of other things, too, that they finally began to understand what the Nazis really were. And Lewis Spence had predicted this. And I need to tell me now that Dennis Wheatley was brought in in some capacity by the British government. I suspect it was so he could actually read the minds of the Nazis and help the actual British war you know, authorities or administration to actually fight on a level that they could actually understand them or at least predict them. And of course, Churchill was wasn't exactly just a regular guy. I mean, it's said that he did nothing of note um, before the war or after, but he's a popular hero in uh, in Britain uh, still to this day. You perceived as the guy that sort of that basically won the war. Um, but there's a, there's a dark side to that guy. Well, before World War Two, he was in charge of the Admiralty for World War One. And in order to get new ships built for the Royal Navy, he deliberately sacrificed, I think it was five British warships, which he declared obsolete in the Dardanelles against the Ottomans, who had heavy artillery guns on either side of the Bosphorus Straits. And they they basically slaughtered these, these British warships using heavy artillery mounted on the coast. And it cost the life of 5,000 British servicemen. Uh, Royal Navy servicemen, to which uh, Churchill's only comment was, the ships were obsolete and now we have a chance to replace them. So he was a pretty dark character himself long before he even became prime minister. The book that you mentioned a few minutes ago, The Occult Causes of the Present War, um, I went looking for that after reading about it in your book. And um, the original editions were hideously expensive. But I was interested to note that a new edition has just been written. Nice, you know, a new cheap edition has just been reprinted this year. And on the information page, Amazon, it says it's because it's considered culturally important. Interesting, isn't it? After this point, it's come out. I bought that version. It's like a, one of these cheapo books. And it's it's actually a very good read. But it, it is strange how they suddenly, after all these years, decided to bring that one out and... Uh, also, Lewis Spencer's work is being discovered, not just only in that, but also his contribution to other things like folklore and uh, general books on magic and the occult. So it's interesting how the and it happens this, you know, it happens on the 100th anniversary end of World War One. The synchronicities surrounding this book, I have to say, have been quite remarkable. Uh, the people I've met on the way, the things, the opportunities that have opened for me. And just the information's fallen fallen on my lap. Really obscure books that are, can't be found online. I couldn't, you know, they're not on Amazon. And I was I'd walk into a secondhand bookshop here, and there it was on the shelf. It was it was a very interesting process writing this book. I have to say, it was things like that happen constantly. Just talking in terms as we have about numerology and symbolism and the importance of all these little aspects and details to this story that most people just don't even notice. Um, for example, the the Great War ending 
on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. You talked, you know, mentioned that briefly a while ago. Now, to someone like me and probably you and probably most people, it's kind of like, just end it as soon as we can. What does it matter what time it is, what day it is? You know, just stop the slaughter as quickly as possible. Let's get this resolved. You know, why would you delay a month or a day or even an hour just so you could, and as you pointed out, it didn't really end then, but there was still a significant marker point. But of course, we're we're, we're dealing with different types of uh, consciousness, different types of people here, really. Yeah, right till the very end. I'm talking about like literally 15, 20 minutes before the armistice was declared, they were still sending British soldiers over the top into German machine gun barrages. 15 minutes later, they would have survived the war and lived. That's not normal behavior. Normal human beings do not behave like that. Uh, any officer or general, you know, with any sense of human decency would not order an assault on the German positions in the final days of the Western Front, final minutes of the Western Front, out of human decency, knowing full well that, you know, in 20 minutes or so, there's going to be an armistice, armistice declared and the war is over. There, this is this is not normal. This is not how normal human beings are. And again, we're dealing with people who are very, very different than us. There, there's they've almost become a different species, and it's incredibly psychopathic. And it's a warning that we always must heed from history that we cannot trust our authority figures to have the interests of human beings at heart. Specifically, even when they declare a war, even that like I would. You know, that 11th hour, the 11th month, the 11th day, that was done for definitely occult reasons. There was a large number of Freemasons involved within the British uh, and the German high command. And they picked that that number for for occult reasons. I don't know the specific reasons why, but that 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 happened for a very specific reason. And they they were still involved in slaughtering, you know, you know, regular troops right to the last moment. I think the image of the Christmas Day football match between the Allies or British, whatever it was, and the Germans is kind of reflects a little bit more about what people are really like, given the chance. But reflecting on what you're just talking about, about spell being cast here, one of the big questions is, of course, with regards to the rise of Hitler and the events of the Second World War is how could so many people have been taken in? The idea that, you know, the entire German nation uh, somehow lost their minds, uh, lost their senses you know, allowed this sort of demon <laughs> to assume the position of power that he did. But of course, as you're pointing out in the book, this wasn't just a case of people, um, you know, dropping their, their their moral sense. And it happened long before Hitler even came on the scene. This had been going on for a while. A need for what was termed a Freya Christus, or an Aryan or a German Christ, a new Christ, was infused and kind of like uh, bombarded into the German consciousness for decades prior to even the First World War. The German social theorist Max Weber, he said in order for, in a modern democracy, in order for people to, you know, row behind a leader with a sense of inspiration and a sense of destiny, the leader of the country just cannot be a bread and butter economics man who takes care of the you know the price of bread the inflation rate the unemployment rate he has to bring the nation on a magical quest on a magical destiny 
and he said this would be the only way that democracy would ever survive is that we produ it produces these kind of leaders and germany more than any other country needed that badly because of the unification of germany by bismarck in the 1850s and 60s the germans became a large nation basically a superpower at the time made up of many many different states and principalities with prussia being the dominant power force within there and the germans never fully felt united it was it's a good lesson to learn today in regards to the european union although the germans were linguistically linked and in some cases culturally linked but the culture between the north and south of germany would be very very different and so as would be their versions of german that they would speak between say prussia and bavaria Weber maintained that Germany more than any other any other society needed this kind of like warrior king to lead them on this path of Germanic destiny. So these things were already infused within people. When you know Germany basically did not lose World War One, they were shafted. They 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 signed, you know, they agreed to a peace treaty, a settlement, but they did not agree to a surrender. By the time the Versailles Treaty came along, the French and particularly the Americans, the American aspect was quite interesting. They, they were, there was a lot of born-again Christians in the Woodrow Wilson ca in, uh, cabinet who were like seen to be pushing these early ideas of, of, of Zionism and so forth into into these talks and these agreements and it was almost like they were going to use germany to do this at the same time the french were particularly mean-spirited and they just wanted to punish the germans excessively this was followed by what they called humanitarian loans which were no such thing they were they were like the imf of their day where american and british banks gave large amounts of money to germany and told them it was a, a humanitarian loan once you pay it back this caused enormous resentment. At the same time, too, the Bolsheviks were flooding Germany with revolutionaries, and there was a couple of uprisings in 1919 in Berlin, and particularly the pivotal one in Munich. The the Soviets, the, the Reds, the Bolsheviks who declared these Soviets, had behaved particularly appallingly to the Germans, and the fact that many of them are Russians didn't help either it stoked a hatred of russia and the east that happened within germany in the in the in the 1919 period at the same time there was an enormous psychic shock going on because of the carnage of the war and because of what had happened this country now germany in 1919 would have looked very similar to how it did in the middle ages the cities would not have been marginalized with the exception of Berlin, most of them would have looked like what we consider to be typical Teutonic architecture and social structures going right back. So it was still visually, aesthetically, a kind of a Middle Ages world that many Germans lived in. Even though they were modern, even though it was very progressive, particularly in Berlin, the majority of Germans were not like that. They were a very deep people, a very conservative and traditional people. At the same time this happened, you had these sort of pseudo-intellectual cultural Marxists and extreme liberals in Berlin acting as a kind of a, an intelligentsia, a kind of an elite who were pushing social and cultural reforms within Germany that the majority of German people were not ready for yet. 
and they were deliberately taking advantage of the psychic fallout from the effects of World War One and the Versailles Treaty. And this made the Germans increasingly, shall we say, agitated as the decades went by, as the years went by. And to their credit, most of them were very well behaved. They did not, they did not indulge in sectarianism. They did not go looking for scapegoats. They were very well aware that the problem specifically lay with international globalists and the banks, particularly British and American banks. And this resentment built and built as, as various things took place. For instance, French and Belgian troops deliberately put black African troops in the Rhineland in order to intimidate uh, German citizens. And what would happen would be things like German girls would have babies with these uh, with these black African soldiers. In most cases, there would be romances, but in some cases, there would be rapes. And it was seen as an antagonistic move by the French to deliberately use these these black African troops as pawns in the Rhineland in order to mock the Germans. So every at every turn, the German were, the German people were mocked, they were ridiculed, and their life was made difficult. They were desperately in need of a savior. So when this guy from when well the first initial event that that really looked like there were things were going to change was when the free corps and the tool the tool combat league the thula combat league sorry descended on munich on valpurgis day and night and beltane 1919 and routed out this vicious bolshevik administration which was running a bavarian soviet it seemed like to the to the, to the people in munich a, you know, a ray of hope for the first time. They never forgot the braveness of the, the Prussian Free Corps troops when they entered the city and, you know, so ruthlessly discarded the Bolsheviks and sent the leaders, like, running back to, back to the Soviet Union. Then there was a need then for a change, and this led towards the, the you know, the 19, what they call the Munich Beer Hall pushed. You see, this was a, this is a big issue for me in the, in when I was writing this book, I've read I've read so many books on the subject that were nothing but polemics written by academics. We would be writing things every literally you could read the book and every paragraph would have an editorial which basically would call the German people idiots and basically say, Oh, they were just stupid for accepting the Nazis without actually trying to go and look at what these people were actually affected by during those days that put them into this. Now, Adolf Hitler, I'm not defending Hitler, but what they called the Beer Hall pushed this 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 rup, this uprising when Adolf Hitler declared a revolution in 1923 in Munich on the, the, the 9th of, and the 8th and 9th of November, 11, 9, 9, 11. This also appears, all these, these weird dates also appear all over this story as well. That took tremendous bravery by Hitler. It, it, it did, and by the leadership of the, the, the National Socialist Workers' Party to actually do what they did. When Martian law was declared in the city, they went into the beer hall, Hitler fired a revolver into the ceiling and said the national revolution has broken out. Let's march on Berlin and overthrow the criminals and central government. 
the local administrations panicked and the next day hitler in in I have to say the theatrics that he invoked was quite remarkable. He smashed a beer glass in the hall uh, after giving this incredible speech. The fragments of the glass smashed all over the ground and instantaneously people who had never heard Hitler before started grabbing fragments of the broken beer glass to to use them as relics. So whatever Hitler's speech was in terms of his, his wording that he used, he was he was a master of linguistics and uh, neurolinguistic programming, and also magic because he'd learned all this kind of this kind of thing in this in his own occult training, which there is massive uh, excellent evidence, not just circumstantial evidence, to show that he knew exactly what he was doing and he had learned how to use words to spell down people. When he smashed the glass, he then announced that it was going to be a march the next day, the 9th of November, 11-9 or 9-11, in Munich. This was an incredible risky gamble that he was doing. And what ha we all know what happened. They, they went on a march. The, the police and the militia fired on them. Several Nazis were, were killed, including the ones on either side of Adolf Hitler, who was front row and center and could have very easily been shot. And, lit and stories circulated that he had fallen to the ground. He, he jumped to the ground as a coward. He hadn't. The man next to him was shot and grabbed Hitler by the lapel of his trench coat and fell to the ground and dragging Hitler down, you know, the dead man's grip kind of thing with him. When people in Munich saw this and saw Hitler's incredible bravery marching into basically cer basically certain death, alongside Rudolf Hess, Ernst Röhm, and the rest of them, it left a huge impression on them because what they saw then, in their you know, they were, forget the national socialism, forget the policies, put all that stuff aside. What they saw was exactly what Adolf Hitler was trying to portray: Teutonic Knights who had come to rescue Germany. And it left such a deep impression on the citizens of Munich that it was only a matter of time before Hitler from that point on, specifically after he went into Landsberg prison and began writing Mein Kampf, would become Chancellor of Germany. It was a textbook piece of theatrical magic. And the term Beer Hall Pushed is used to almost diminish it. I'm not defending Hitler and his policies, but I will say when something's when I was reading the 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 accounts of that the Munich pushed on the 8th and 9th of November. There's absolutely no doubt that Adolf Hitler and the National Socialists, the NSDAP inner party, did an enormous risk, took part in an, in an incredible roll of the dice. And what they achieved that day literally began a kind of a chain reaction that would happen until the next 10 years, until they assumed power in 1933, where they basically were finding that missing Teutonic knight that every German longed for after the humiliation of the Versailles Treaty and brought them into manifest in terms of a political movement. As more and more horrors and, you know, basically crimes, international globalist crimes, were inflicted upon the German people. It was it was a, a very interesting symbiosis that as much as Hitler was and the National Socialists were coming to power, the globalists and the international financiers were deliberately stoking and attacking Germany, almost as if to bring him onto the national stage. It's the most interesting thing, but this is what happened: a people were destroyed in the midst of 
you know, we're talking about people who were actually, if a horse was shot in the street, were going out with knives and cutting the flesh off the horse because it was the only food they could get. Going from that and being so lost and then seeing this kind of like this, this as Max Weber had predicted, you know, a warrior king emerging in Germany. He, it was it was the perfect antidote they needed, and they didn't really particularly care about his anti-Semitic policies or his military objectives. They just wanted some kind of salvation for the Teutonic soul, and he delivered it. And to and to put it into simplistic terms, that he they were stupid, and Hitler and the Nazis duped them. And and unfortunately, that's the majority of how these academic texts literally portray what happened in Germany between the First and Second World War is a gross distortion of what actually happened. That concludes part one of our interview. Be sure to tune in next week for part two. If you enjoy the show, please check out the website. That's legalizefreedom.com, legalize-freedom.com, where you'll find an archive of programs offering alternative views on a wide range of topics, including world affairs, politics and economics, science and technology, religion and spirituality, conspiracy and alternative history. You can also browse and buy a range of books and DVDs from our guests, and if you're feeling generous, make a donation to help keep the site up and running. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to LegalizeFreedom.com. <laughs>